if you look at excitement and you look at nerves or stress or anxiety, excitement is you visualize something in the future, your heart rate increases and your hands get clammy. If you're stressed or you're nervous or you're anxious, you're visualizing something in the future, your heart rate increases and your hands get clammy. So the one way that you can calm down your amygdala and that response of the hormones flooding into your body is by giving your brain context of what's actually happening in the situation. Neuroscience, NLP, mindset, self-talk, we cover it all in today's episode. I am so excited to share my conversation with clinical hypnotherapist, Linnell Riley. I had a great introduction to what clinical hypnotherapy is all about and how it can help people who are experiencing anxiety, depression, compulsive behavior, addictions, improving self-confidence, and shifting negative thoughts to live a happier and more fulfilled life. In this episode, Linnell shares her knowledge of brain science and some strategies to help with anxiety, which is the main focus of her practice. There are so many great insights and takeaways in this episode around how to reframe our thoughts and shift into a more positive mindset. So let's jump right in. Thank you so much for joining me on Mindset Mastery, Linnell. How are you today? I'm good, thank you, Rachel. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm so glad you could join me. I'm so interested to learn about clinical hypnotherapy because it's something that um, is very new to me. So I guess the first question I have is how exactly does hypnotherapy work? How it works. So if you think of the mind and you've got, or if you think of an iceberg essentially, and you think of the tip of the iceberg that's above the water, that's your conscious mind. So that's where all your logic sits. And then if you think about the what's below the water of an iceberg, that's a much bigger part. And that's the subconscious or unconscious mind. Um, and that's where all our beliefs come from, our memories. It's where our emotions are, our values and our habits. And so what happens in hypnotherapy is we actually bypass the conscious mind. And so we can work with issues where they're actually being created you can have a client in the clinic and before you go into hypnosis you can be talking to them at a conscious level and you can be getting the a response from them to say well yeah but yeah but so when you're working with them directly in the emotional mind and with the actual problem you don't get those yeah buts because it actually in a focused state of attention a person actually becomes dissociated from the problem. So if you imagine that you were, I don't know, on the street and you saw a couple arguing, now they're in that problem and they're emotionally attached to that problem. But you're standing there as an observer. So you don't actually have an attachment to that problem. You're actually dissociated from it. So you can see it from a different perspective and that's what happens when someone's in a trance state they actually become the observer of their problem and that's why hypnosis is such a great therapeutic tool is when someone just becomes an observer and detached you can provide them suggestions and they are more likely to take on board those suggestions so that's essentially how hypnosis works it's just 
it's a therapeutic tool for a clinical hypnotherapist to work with. Is it at all similar to a meditative state or is it totally um, different? It's not totally different, but it, it is different in that fact that you become dissociated. I remember when I used to do meditation and I couldn't stay in meditation for long at all. And when I went and I studied hypnotherapy and, you know, we were in and out of hypnosis as we we're doing our training, it felt like a completely different state to me. Um, they are on similar lines, but obviously with a trance state, you're doing like a therapy with it. But we do go into trance states many times every day. Um, you know, if you're driving and you go from A to B and you don't remember how to getting there, you're essentially in a trance state. Or if you're absorbed in reading a book or watching a movie and you don't hear anything else around you, you're in a trance state again. So yeah, all a trance state really is, is a focused state of attention. Right. So can anyone be hypnotized? Yes. And you get a lot of people that think they can't. Um, most people who think that they are very strong-minded, they don't think that they can be hypnotized, but it's actually probably those people who can be hypnotized the easiest because someone in a hypnotized state, they are always in control. I usually find with clients, it's usually people um, that experience anxiety and they're worried that they're going to lose control. So when they're worried they're going to lose control, they aren't really prepared to go along with you in hypnosis. All that you need for someone to be able to do to go into a trance state is to be in a comfortable position, to be able to focus on your voice and be willing to come along with you. And that's all that they need to be able to go into a trance state. As a clinical hypnotherapist, we also need to identify the client that we're working with. So you can have, I wouldn't say two types of client, but you may have a client that's very analytical minded. And so you need to work with that person very differently in hypnosis than say you would work with someone who's more imaginative. Someone who's more imaginative, you can work with them with metaphors and stories and things like that. Um, and you'll keep them in a trance state. If you did a lot of metaphors with someone who's very analytical, you'll lose them because they don't want stories. They just want the facts. They want the details. So it's also about knowing your client and knowing how to work with them to get them to come along with you. Wow, that's so interesting. That would be really important as a therapist as well, just being able to make people feel at ease. Yeah. Is there techniques to helping someone feel at ease around you? Yeah, you can map their language. So if they use certain words, say, you know, you just use something a little bit differently, you'd use their same language that they use. It's all about the rapport thing, making, having them feel like there's something familiar in you. Um, it makes it a little bit harder doing it on a podcast because you do it, normally do it a lot with body language. Mm -hmm. Like I said, like mirroring and mapping their body language sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I guess that's the only thing that's a bit different when you're doing things like this and not face-to-face because -face, body language is probably your biggest thing to build that rapport and that comfort level. Mm, yeah, because yeah, I definitely know for myself, I love meeting new clients in person if it's possible, if, you know, they're mm. in the same same city. Yeah. That's why I'd like to do the 
face to face for the podcast because it's not quite the same, but it's better yeah. than just doing it over the phone, I feel. for Yeah. So once we, we know how to do it, can you train yourself to go into um, like a hypnotic state yourself? Yeah, you can. They're very easy. Um, it's actually quite easy to get into a hypnotic state. And if you, I guess if you experience it and you know what it's about, I mean, I, I'll go into a hypnotic state. Sometimes when I'm very relaxed, I notice that I go into a hypnotic state. Um, but yeah, you can definitely teach yourself, you know, and there's the thing with hypnosis and the thing with when you consider anxiety and depression and things like that, you know, we can take someone into hypnosis by going into a trance state in a therapy. If someone's going down the line as well, and all someone needs to do to be in a trance state, if they are, they have self-talk and they are worrying and they are ruminating and they can't get out of the space, that actually in a, a self-trance when they're doing that. So you've got to be very mindful when you are self-talking to yourself and you aren't switching that off because you are actually in a trance state at that time. So you've got to make sure in those states that, you know, be mindful of what you're telling yourself. Yeah, that's a lot of our self-talk. The majority of our self-talk is negative throughout the day. And yeah, just being mindful that we aren't getting stuck in that in a trance way. That, that's really powerful. Yeah, because that you reframe your mind as well. Like you can... If you're not careful, you will start reframing your mind. If you have constant negative thoughts, worries, things like that, you can start reframing your mind and rewiring your mind to go down that path. Mm, definitely. So what is your role as the clinical hypnotherapist to facilitate these kind of sessions? I work with the client. So I have my role and the client has their role. Um, now, when I work in with my clients in hypnosis obviously hypnosis is just a, a vehicle for me to provide information it's a therapeutic tool that I use so I then have strategic hypnotherapy uh, strategic psychotherapy and neuro-linguistic programming and while the clients in the hypnotized state those are the tools and the resources that I draw upon to deliver the therapy to the client so it's essentially getting to the bottom of um, someone's problem and the initial interview. And it's actually asking, you have to be very mindful to make sure you're asking the right questions to elicit the problem because you'll get clients coming into clinic and they'll present with one problem. And if you aren't asking the right questions and you treat them for that problem, you're missing what is actually triggering it. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've had a client come into clinic and her doctor had diagnosed her with depression and wanted to give her um, antidepressants. Now, that's not something that she wanted to go down. That wasn't something for her. And so she found me and she came along and she said, you know, look, I've got depression and we talked about it. And as I kept questioning her, it turned out she actually had anxiety and she had, um, was experiencing excessive compulsive behavior as well. So those two combined, like she was extremely limiting her life, um, the flexibility that she had, and it was just making her 
extremely unhappy. And so that's how she's come about to having or experiencing depression. You know, and if I had have worked with her on depression, we would have missed the root problem. It would have been like trimming the top off a weed. It would have been fine for a while, but instead we were able to go in and pull the actual root out of that weed. Um, and now she's just, yeah, she's extremely happy. It's nice. I touch base with her every now and then. Um, she doesn't experience ex uh, depression. She never had to get antidepressants. So yeah, it was, it's really nice. Oh, that's awesome. So what are the other problems or conditions that hypnotherapy can help with? Anything that's got a cognitive behavioral thing to it. So anything that's got unhelpful thoughts or feelings. Um, as some of the main things that we work with though, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive behavior, um, there's phobias, addiction, gambling, um, there's sexual dysfunction when it's um, at a mind level, but there's a lot of other things that people come to as well, but those are probably some of the key things. Mm. And for you, when did you start getting into this sort of work? Um, my goodness, I think I, well, I studied clinical hypnotherapy about five years ago. Um, I always had a fascination with the mind. I loved neuroplasticity and I always wanted to work with people. I didn't, I never, I was never really drawn to counseling or psychotherapy and I came across clinical hypnotherapy and I went to an information evening and was just absolutely blown away. Um, and knowing that, you know, in this field, you can work with clients um, who may have been getting therapy elsewhere and, you know, they've been getting therapy for years and they haven't seen much of a change and cl clinical hypnotherapy, you can see change in one session. Um, you can see change after three sessions or six sessions. It's just amazing to see the shift in a person. Mm. And yeah, I was sold. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, can you tell me a bit more about what neuroplasticity is? Neuroplasticity, yeah. So that's the, the science of the mind and how the mind reframes itself. So neuroplasticity, it's like you've got neurons that either they, when they fire together, they wire together. So if you go down, and this is what I was talking about earlier, it's very mindful to keep on top of yourself talk. So if you're someone that's very positive and you keep reframing your mind and you keep going out there and you keep being positive and you keep those sort of thoughts going, what you're going to do is you're going to, neurons are going to fire together and start wiring together. So you're going to end up with, you know, have more of a positive mind frame if you start to go down the path where there is a lot of negative self-talk um, and you start missing the positives you are going to start wiring firing and wiring those neurons together and you'll create that neural pathway so it's all about it's all about reframing the mind and um the techniques that you can use and how you can, you know, there's been people um, with neuroplasticity that, you know, they might have a, a, they may have had an arm amputated and they get phantom pain in their arm. 
neuroplasticity can take away that phantom pain by just by tricking the brain as well. It's very easy to trick the brain if you know what you need to do. It's about reframing the mind and yeah, creating different ways of thinking, feeling, behaving. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways you would suggest to start to build more of the positive, the positive pathways and get out of like the bad habits of the negative self-talk? Um, well, the first step is actually being mindful of what you're saying to yourself. Um, and that's a problem when, you know, self-talk, you know, we've been talking to ourselves and self-talk ever since we were children. Um, and it just becomes second nature. So it can just go along in the background and you're not really paying attention to it. So the first step is to actually becoming mindful, becoming aware of what is happening. And when the self-talk starts coming up, to actually start questioning it. You know, you might be thinking, oh, I'm not good enough. And it's like, oh, hold on. And so start questioning it out loud. Well, and say out loud, I'm not good enough. It's like, well, who says I'm not good enough? How do, I, you know, how do you determine you're not good enough? You know, who are you comparing yourself to? Starting to question yourself so you, when you say something out loud, you hear it differently. When you are running it around in your unconscious mind, you just allow it to go around your unconscious mind and you just believe it. When you say it out loud, you're actually hearing it differently. And then you can start picking yourself up on it and then you change it. I'm not good enough. Well, yeah, I am good enough. You know, there may be a, you know, you might just be, um, you know, oh, I failed, you know, and it's like, well, you didn't necessarily fail, but you know, it's an experience, it's learning. So it's constantly just challenging that voice. You've got to be on top of that negative, critical self-talk like you're on top of a shark. And if you keep on it, it will eventually change. You will reframe your mind to get out of that thought pattern. Would you say we're either kind of predispositioned to be negative or be positive, or is that something that's learned? Um, if you go right back, so if you take this right back to, we are predisposed to um, think negatively in some ways. Now, this goes back to, well, not think negatively, but for anxiety, and it goes back to the caveman days. So our mind is designed, or our amygdala, um, you know, it's designed for survival, you know, back in caveman days. So you always had to be on the lookout, you know, for predators, predators, anything like that happening. Now, obviously, in this day and age, we aren't going to get attacked by a lion or anything like that. We don't have that many predators, but we've bought our anxious amygdala with us. So, and it's still designed to look after us and um, make sure that we survive. And it's very easy for us to go down a path, you know, of worry or uncertainty. So we are more designed to go down that way because of that. But there's always going to be people who go down the more positive mindset. And pretty much all that is, is everybody has the critical voice or the self-talk. But not everybody listens to it. And that's pretty much the only difference between maintaining 
the negative self-talk or dismissing it. Yeah, so it's all about choosing yeah. whether we're going to yeah, listen to the negativity or reframe it into yeah. something positive. Um, can you also explain a bit more about the role that the amygdala plays? Yeah, so there's the amygdala is responsible for flight, fight, and freeze. Now that's an instant response. So if you think you're in danger or just imagine you're about, you're in the car and someone's just about to hit you, the amygdala, it releases hormones. So it releases cortisol and it releases adrenaline. So adrenaline is going to flush into your body to get you ready to fight or flight. The cortisol, any bodily responses that aren't required, it will suppress so that you are on form to fight or flight. Now, the problem with that is your mind is solely reliant on the information you give it. So when you think about the amygdala, you think about anxiety and the mind, the mind can only get context from what you give it. So if you think about the amygdala, um, I'm thinking of this, of how it all works with the mind and the brain. You imagine the amygdala, it's just in this little black box, can't see anything. It's got no context. It's waiting on feedback from you. You're in another room and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It sends that response to the amygdala. The amygdala is like, oh my goodness, she is in trouble. Flood her with these hormones. She needs to get out of here. She needs to fight. It has no idea that a little cockroach may have just run across your lounge room and you're freaked out at it. And that's a, yeah, that's a really, this is where anxiety can come into play a lot as well. It's your amygdala and it's your prefrontal cortex that come into play. Hmm. Okay. That's really interesting. Is there anything we can do about that to calm down the response of the amygdala? There is, and that's giving your brain context. So there's a YouTube video that Simon Sinek did, which I think perfectly explains it. It's about excitement versus nerves, or, you know, that could be anxiety, stress, you know, feeling anxious about something. Now, if you look at it, if you look at excitement and you look at nerves or stress or anxiety, excitement is you visualize something in the future your heart rate increases and your hands get clammy. If you're stressed or you're nervous or you're anxious, you're visualizing something in the future, your heart rate increases and your hands get clammy. So the one way that you can calm down your amygdala and that response of the hormones flooding into your body is by giving your brain context of what's actually happening in the situation. Like I said, you know, if the little cockroach is just coming along, you're not in imminent danger. It's like, okay, all right. So that was just a little cockroach. We're okay. Another example is you might be on a plane and you start getting that feeling. You, your heart rate races. You're worrying about the flight. You're starting to get nervous. Your hands are clammy. It's like, just say to yourself, it's like, oh, I'm excited. And it gives your brain context. It's like, oh, these feelings aren't actually nerves or she's excited. I tried this with a client. I gave them that suggestion that when they were sitting in the airplane to say, hey, I'm actually excited. And he actually said it worked. So 
it's all about giving your mind context because it will, like I said, if it just thinks you're in danger, it's going to protect you and it's going to have that response. Mm, definitely. That, that's so powerful. I really love that excitement versus nerves because it's mm. something that I talk about with my clients as well, mm. who are afraid of being on video for the first time, even though they want to do and they want to get their message out, they say they're you know really nervous about talking on camera, but you know, we try to reframe that into being excitement. And it's yeah. something I've definitely used myself with, um, you know, job interviews or um, even meeting new clients, stuff like that to reframe how it is. So um, it definitely creates a different feeling in your body, I find. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Mm. And I think another thing that helps as well is that people focus a lot on like you're saying there will be on the actual interview it's, itself. It's also a great way to say, do you know what? Think about it when you got past that and how you're going to feel that, like focus on that feeling as well. And that shifts it as well. But yeah, I love that. Um, exciting versus nervous. It's, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. And so a lot of it is just about reframing again, reframing all our thoughts when we have a negative reaction especially physical reactions. So I think with nerves and um, fear and we get a real physical reaction to those things. Mm. What that physical reaction, does that come from the cortisol and the adrenaline or is that something else? It does, but it's also, I mean, the physical side would, but it's also, so you've got your prefrontal cortex as well. And this is where all your thoughts come from. So it depends on what you're thinking in those moments as well. So you've got two areas in the mind that you, that can create anxiety. Like the one is the amygdala fight, flight, freeze, but also the prefrontal cortex. And so dependent on what you're thinking, what the thoughts are that you're running through your head, your thoughts will actually create a feeling in your body. And I've had some people say to me, you know, is it the thoughts that create the feeling or the feelings that create the thoughts but if you're sitting here, say, say you're nervous or, you know, whatever. And I said, feel excited. You know, it's not going to be that easy. If you're sitting there feeling nervous, you're not just going to go, ah, I feel excited. I would have to say to you, can you remember a time where you felt most excited? You know, whether it was you got your first job or whether it was you got your first car, can you think back to a time where you really felt excited? I'm more likely to get them to feel an excited feeling by getting them to think back and remember it. So it comes from your thoughts. So yeah, your, your anxious feeling can come from your thoughts or it's also the uh, stress response that comes from the hormones that are released into your body. Mm, that's a really great point about memories. Um, how powerful are memories in being able to reframe how we're feeling? There's some NLP techniques, neuro-linguistic programming techniques that work really well to shift any unhelpful memories, any memories that don't serve anyone. And, you know, memories can be from years ago. They can be from five minutes ago. Um, and it is, it's a very, there's some very powerful techniques that can shift a memory um, you can get, have someone come into the clinic where they are experiencing, a, say, an out of eight out of 10 
um, for this memory or this um, problem that is happening for them. And after this technique, they can be feeling a three out of 10. They can be feeling completely different. So you can change unhelpful memories for someone. Mm -hmm. Is that I am working with the unconscious mind in the hypnotic state to do that? No. So not, not even with that, the, one of the NLP techniques probably takes about five or 10 minutes. You do, obviously you get the client to close their eyes and just listen to what you're saying. So it is this type of um, hypnotic state, but you don't go into the full induction and getting them into that hypnotic state. You're just changing their representation of the problem so that they can no longer recall the problem or the memory as they could before that you do that technique with them. Hmm. Okay. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, the mind isn't pretty incredible how it works. These techniques, like I go back and study every year. And so you can do these techniques year after year and know exactly what's going to happen, what they're going to do. But at the end of the day, if you've got like an eight out of 10, nine out of a 10 problem, it's still going to end up a three out of 10 just because you can trick the mind. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so is doing your hypnotherapy and NLP, that's tripping up my words, doing your hypnotherapy and NLP work, is that a lifelong journey in itself where you go back and continue training? Yeah, absolutely. So with what I do, I am, I'm always in supervision. So I attend a supervision group every month. I go back and I still do hypnotherapy. I still go back and learn hypnotherapy, strategic psychotherapy. I go back and learn the NLP each year because there's always different things that you learn. And it's also depending on the people that are there when you're learning, you'll learn different things again. Um, but it is, I see it as a lifelong thing and I absolutely love it. I don't know where I've ever been to training and been so absorbed for the eight hours of the day and just love it. But yeah, it's a, it, it, NRP is a lifestyle as well. So it's something that you would want to continue with. Absolutely. Mm, would you say once you start, it's one of those things that's kind of addictive and you just want to do more and more? For me, absolutely. And I know some people that are like that as well. You know, some... I think I was in my first NLP class and I remember saying to the trainer, I said to him, this is going to change my life. And it did. And I've seen it change other people's lives as well. And yeah, pretty powerful stuff. Mm. Did you first go into it for just for yourself to progress in your life? Or did you always have in mind that you wanted to help other people with it? It was when I was looking at training I'd heard about NLP years before, but never really knew what it was. But yeah, when I signed up to do the clinical hypnotherapy and then I went to an information evening on NLP, um, you could just see how the two work so well together. Um, I couldn't imagine doing clinical hypnotherapy without the neuro-linguistic programming. What's the most rewarding thing that you've gotten out of doing the hypnotherapy and the NLP? just seeing the changes in their life, you know, having people come along to your clinic and they believe that they're fundamentally flawed or they believe that they can't be 
happy in their life that you know there's something about them that's broken and seeing the the shift in them and seeing how their life changes and how it changes within a family because you know if someone's experiencing a really difficult time it's going to affect their whole family and so you see you see a shift in their family as well that's got to be the the best thing that I've I've experienced with this sort of work Mm -hmm. you know people some people that think that you know they don't want to continue with their life because like I said they think they're fundamentally flawed and they just aren't it's just when you break it down it's just a process that they're doing so we just need to change that process for them that's all it is so it's yeah it's amazing to see Mm, that's fantastic so you talked to me the other day about you're hoping to start a blog real soon Mm. tell me what that's going to be all about yeah, so I'm in the process of getting that all set up. Um, so that's going to be about inspiring women to basically live their best life. You know, because I work with anxiety and that's what I specialize in, it's about helping women step out of fear and having the courage to become the person that they want to be. Um, you know, and that's in their personal life and that's in their professional life as well. So that's what I want this blog to be about. I want to have tools and resources and information for them to help them go along their journey in life. Yeah. To step out of fear and become fierce, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. What are some of the tools that you want to equip women with to be able to do this? I'll do some hypnosis sessions. I'll record those. So those will be available for clients Obviously, a one-on-one session with someone is a lot better than doing just a generic hypnosis session, but they'll still be able to help the client. Um, And then also, I'm considering doing courses, you know, to do with anxiety, to do with self-esteem and things like that. So just to, yeah, things like that. I think that's, that's my starting point at this stage and then see where it evolves to awesome what would you say is the biggest thing someone can do themselves to start to help with their anxiety if they're especially if they're experiencing it you know either in the workplace or like out of um like out in the world and they're having anxiety episodes what is something that they can do themselves to kind of bring that back down and and continue on with the day Well, the key thing is to be mindful of what they're thinking about because, like I said, your thoughts will create your feelings. So if you're worrying about something, you're ruminating about something, it's going to create the feelings in your body. There's also another technique and it's um, it's an NLP technique and it's all to do with eye patterns. Now, when you think about eye patterns, there's different areas. When I say eye patterns for someone to access information. So if someone wants to remember something, their eyes will go up to their left. If someone is visualizing something, it goes up to their right. And if someone is thinking and feeling, their eyes are going to go down. Now, when anyone is experiencing anxiety, their eyes will be in a downward 
position. They will be looking down because that's where they can access their thinking and their feeling space. So one really important thing that I like to teach my clients is if you're ever worrying about something, you're ruminating about something, if you're feeling anxious, keep your eyes up, keep them above um, what is called a horizon. If you're looking straight ahead, that's your horizon. Keep your eyes up because you'll no longer be able to access the thinking and feeling space, which will sit you in that feeling. And if you think about language, if you think about things like keep your chin up, you know, it's all to do with that. It's all keep your, keep your eyes up, look up, things are looking up. It's all to do with that. You can't get in that same um, space of feeling those emotions if your eyes are up because you simply can't access the feelings and the thoughts. And that's one simple technique that I would give to someone to keep them out of that space and to just monitor their thinking and make sure that if they're thinking about something that it either has an action to it and if that doesn't stop thinking about it if it's not happening in the now and they're worrying about something that's in the future stop because it's just a fabrication at that stage so yeah, just be very careful of your thoughts. Mm, that's a really great technique. I've never actually heard someone explain it like that before. It also brings me the question, why is it um, left, right and down? What are those different areas that make us always look in those directions? Well, some people will be, so you've got people who are normally organised and you've got people who are abnormally organised. So depending on how that person's organised, they will be flipped. You'll always have your visual, uh, your remembering and your visualising at the top and thinking and feeling will always be at the bottom. But for some people it can, you know, for some it'll be remembering on the left, some it'll be remembering on the right. And that's just, it's to do with the, apparently the optical nerve is the closest nerve. Um, and that's why your eyes, your eye accessing cues, you get into those spaces. It's not, and a lot of people say, oh, you can tell that someone's lying if they look up and to the left. It's not true because, it, you, you know, you've got to work out whether someone's abnormally organized or normally organized. Yeah, I don't know if I answered that. Yeah, no, that's because I think I notice in myself, I look up to the right when I'm remembering things. So is that abnormally? That's abnormally organized. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way to find out is by asking someone a series of questions and you just watch their eye patterns and see mm. where they go. But yeah, mm. that is why. So is it true that if we want to remember something, I've heard people say, if you want to remember, you, you look up to either the left or right and, and say it back to yourself. Is that true? Does it work that way? If you are looking up wherever you are so for you to the right and me to the right as well, I'm abnormally organized. It's the only way I'm going to be able to remember something. Like if you then look to your left, you just can't really remember anything. But I think what that would be doing, what they're saying, you know, if you look up to your remembering place and then you say it out out loud, it's a different way of learning something. It's like when I um, said earlier, you know, your thoughts can run unconsciously and just internally but when you say it out loud 
you hear it very differently and you learn it very differently. So I'd say that's what they're referencing to there. It's like going to a remembering place and then saying it out loud is just another way to remember it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And it enhances it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's good to know next time I'm trying to remember something. Also with, it may or may not be um, relating to the eye patterns, but our body language and our thoughts, does that um, kind of play hand in hand? Can we trick our brain using our body language as well? Yeah, you can. And you can, um, yeah, because even with, just your physiology and that's actually another thing that people can do who are experiencing anxiety the only way to well not the only way but if your eye patterns are coming down because you're in your thinking feeling space you're going to notice your physiology your shoulders are going to be rolled forward and you can kind of be hunched over if you roll your shoulders back and you keep bring your physiology up and your eyes come up you're going to trick your body into you know, feeling great, feeling good, you know, and you can trick your mind into it that way. Um, and obviously your body um, language and everything like that, it works with other people on an unconscious level. So that can delve into a whole other thing. So I won't go down into that, but yeah, body language and how we perceive things. Look, um, Just something simple. Um, you know if someone's interested in what you're saying because they will nod three times with you. Right. If they're nodding more than three times with you, they're like, oh, my God, get me out of here. I'm not interested. I don't want to listen. For some reason, we love doing things in threes. And a head nod. Now I'm really conscious. You know if someone's interested to you. Yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But you start to pick up when you see things and you hear people, it's always done in threes. We love something about threes. If someone's going, you know, just keeps nodding to you, it's like, it's, yeah, be very aware. They're not really interested. Right. That's so interesting. I've never heard that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, I'm very mindful of that. It's like, okay, be quiet now, Lanelle. <laughs> um, and what about eye contact with someone when you're talking to them or especially when you're listening to them? It depends, I guess, because some people just aren't comfortable with eye contact. And I know, you know, when that comes down to, you hear about people and they think that, you know, if you ask them a question and their eyes seem to dart around and they think that they're actually avoiding a question because their eyes are darting around, they think they're delaying for time. What is actually happening is that you may ask someone a question. So if we're going back to the eye patterns, the eye accessing cues, You know, you could ask me a question, for example, about something in the past and it was, you know, quite a way away. I'm going to, my eyes are going to go up, first of all, because I need to think back. So they're going to go to, I need to remember that time. So it's going to remember that time. Then I'm going to go back down to the bottom and I'm going to start thinking and then I'll probably be feeling as well. So my eyes are going to be moving until I can access the information that I need to answer your question. So I don't know if that sort of answers your question about the eyes, but that's the only thing that I can think of around, yeah, eyes Mm. with, you know, communication and things like Mm. that. Yeah, no, that's great. Just an extra thought I had on the side there, but that's so interesting. There are just so many 
things with um yeah like body language and expression and um everything is just yeah, yeah. it's all it's and that's how, that's how you can influence people as well because you know when we build rapport and this is nlp when we build rapport with someone we like people who are like us we naturally gravitate to them so if you're wanting to influence someone it's about being mindful of their body language and what they're doing and you just then you mirror it it doesn't mean that you know you do it you know someone's there with their arms folded and that's someone that you want to build rapport with you may be standing there with your arms in front of you but you just link your fingers that person on an unconscious level is going to see something that's familiar in you and that will start building rapport. It's just how quick the mind works and at the unconscious level, what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And that's where, you know, with NLP, it goes down a rabbit hole of learning. Yeah, it's not like there's, there's just so much. Look, finally, what is the biggest message that you want to get out for people? I think the biggest message that I would get out to people is, do you know what? I always bring this, and I'm sorry, I always bring this back to anxiety and things like that because that's what I work with. That's what I'm passionate about. But anything like depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive behavior, anything like that, it is just a process that you are running and that can be changed. Mm. It's something that's either someone has developed along the way um, through life experiences, generally through life experiences. It could be something through childhood as well, a learned experience. But when you look at things from a clinical hypnotherapy and a strategic psychotherapy perspective, if you're working with the right clinical hypnotherapist, they're just processes and all we need to do is change the process and that clients can see change that what they're experiencing right now they don't have to experience mm. it's probably the message yeah mm. that's awesome Linnell thank you so much for your time I feel like I've learned so much in this interview and there are probably a hundred more questions I could ask but <laughs> I just want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast thank you it's been an absolute pleasure thanks Rachel Hands up, who's ready to jump into a clinical hypnotherapy session? I hope you enjoyed the episode just as much as I enjoyed recording it, and I hope you gained some great takeaways and insights as we depart for today. If you'd like to find out more about Linnell, you can visit her website, adaptivehypnotherapy.com.au, which is also linked in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today. And if you enjoyed the episode, please send us some love by giving us a like, leaving a review so more people just like you can join us on the journey towards mindset mastery. I hope you have an extraordinary day. And remember, we are only limited by what we believe we are limited.